Thanks for joining us on AutoLine this week. And my one and only guest today is Bill Vlasic, the New York Times Bureau Chief for uh, Detroit. And Bill, great having you back on AutoLine. Thanks, John. Glad to be here. And the reason, folks, that I've got him is he's just finished writing a book called Once Upon a Card. The fall and resurrection of America's big three automakers, GM, Ford, and Chrysler. And it's all about the, the incredible change that this industry has gone through over the last five years. And Bill, it, it's amazing. And when I read the story and I tore through this book, absolutely could not put it down. I can't believe what a soap opera this business has been through in the last five years, especially culminating with the bankruptcies. It's been unprecedented what's happened. Um, I think people forget how bad it was just a couple years ago, two years ago at this time. General Motors was uh, heading down to Washington with Chrysler and Ford to ask for a, a bailout in Congress. We know how that turned out. Um, the ups and downs, the, the, the roller coaster, if you will, it's, uh, it's never happened before. I mean, this was history in the making, and when it was happening, I don't think we quite realized that. Well, part of it, too, is even us in the media didn't know everything that was going on behind the scenes. You've fleshed that out amazingly so. And you were able to interview almost all the top players in this game. And, you know, how did you find uh, them willing to talk or not? What was the reaction when you approached them on wanting to do this book? Well, I was covering the story, uh, and I have covered the story for many years, and all through this period uh, since early 08 with the New York Times. So I was on top of the news at all times, and, uh, but there were a lot of people that weren't necessarily um, willing or really appropriate for me to talk to in the, in the, when it was happening, and of course... Uh, well, would they have even talked at when no, this was all no, going on? No, no, I had to wait for some people after they left their companies or after the, they felt more comfortable discussing the events that had taken place, whether they were in the government, the companies, the union. Um, but I used all the um, uh, intelligence and reporting that I'd done for the last five years in the book. I didn't leave anything in the notebooks. It's all there, and uh, including a lot of visits to plants and a lot of time spent with people who work for the GM, Ford, and Chrysler who aren't executives um, or board members uh, the, the guys in the plants, the people in the offices, the designers. I tried to get their voices in the book, and I found that as important as it was to talk to the major players, the CEOs, um, the CFOs, uh, the, the government uh, task force, it was just as important to, to get the other voices in that I had heard and seen while this all unfolded. One of the things that you bring out in the book that I really didn't know a whole lot about was the role Kirk Kerkorian had played in trying to get Ford. And let's talk about that a little bit, because here's a, a billionaire, lives in Vegas, uh, sometime back had tried to make a run at Chrysler. That didn't go anywhere. Then he made a run at General Motors, and that didn't go anywhere. And then he ended up going after Ford as well. Talk a little bit about that, because I don't think even at the time that much of that story came out. Well, uh, Kirk Kerkorian and Jerry York, you have to speak of the two together because Jerry... York was his advisor. York was his advisor. Had been and, at Chrysler and IBM and really knew the inside of the industry. And, 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 and York really was his instrument to take control of one of these companies. Uh, clearly, Kerkorian wanted to buy Chrysler at one point in the mid-90s. That didn't work out. Got the merger with Daimler, made a lot of money. Uh, came back at GM as sort of the ultimate sort of uh, turnaround. And came at it pretty strongly to take over General Motors in a very short period of time. 
this whole uh, the, the the discussions with Carlos Ghosn about a, a Renault Nissan um, General Motors joint venture was all initiated and pushed by Kerkorian. He wanted, to, and so did York, take GM, turn it around, and make um, an enormous profit down the road. And GM fought him off, got rid of him. But in the end, and I knew Jerry York very well, and he was a great source for me over the years and a friend. Since passed May away. May rest in peace. Mm-hmm. Um, decided that Ford was really the company he had been uh, uh, sort of salivating over and hadn't realized it. And that was all because of the new uh, leadership of Alan Mulally, the fact that the things that Mulally and Bill Ford and the Ford team were doing were really what York saw as the appropriate way to turn around an auto company, not GM, which is um, to stay the course and keep doing as has been done before. And Kerkorian is a, was, is a big uh, investor, and he puts big bets down. And he pulled his bet off the table at GM because he didn't have confidence in that management team. He could have stayed there. So they didn't get the alliance with, with uh, Renault-Nissan. He could have kept his 9 or 10 or 11 percent uh, and tried to ride with GM. But he saw, um, he smelled uh, trouble and pulled it off and almost immediately went, put it on Ford, which uh, tells you something about either his, um, his appreciation of what can be done in the auto industry. It was interesting when I interviewed Kerkorian uh, in L.A., he said he did not buy this idea that that if one of the big three goes down, they all go down, that they're somehow joined at the hip. He said, why is that the case? Why does, why, why, you know, does the industry have to fail? Why can't one company make it? And he was right. Um, unfortunately for him, I suppose, uh, during the crash of 2008, the economic crisis, Mr. Kerkorian had other needs for his cash with his own uh, casino gaming company, MGM Mirage, pulled his money off the table with Ford and probably uh, rused the day when he had to do that. But his instincts were to stick with Ford, and I think it was more of a, um, a judgment call on which of these two companies, GM or Ford, had the brighter future. One of the things that you get to in the book is that Don LeClaire, then the chief financial officer at Ford, had been talking with Jerry York and presumably with Kirk Kerkorian. In fact, one of the other rumors that I had heard out on the street is that's what cost Don LeClaire his job. I mean, here's a guy who went out and borrowed all the money that Ford Motor Company needed so that when the credit markets did collapse, they did not have to run to the government for money. Otherwise, they would have. And yet Don LeClaire gets blown out of the picture. I had heard that... It was because the family was worried that he was conspiring with York and Kerkorian to take control of the Ford Motor Company and rather push the family out of it altogether. Well, officially, Don retired after many years of service at Ford, and he's the only senior executive who's left the company since Alan Mulally came in. And I think there's, there's some reasons for that that have to do with Kerkorian, and there's some reasons that have to do probably with other things. Well, his personality. He was known as a grenade thrower and the, they, causing a lot of disruption within the Ford executive ranks. I think we said, you know, he, he, he did not uh, sort of uh, do well under the new regime. However, the Ford family is not going to sell out to Kirk Kerkorian. And anybody that they perceived was um, proposing that, uh, whether it's accurate or not, I'm not surprised that they wouldn't want anything to do with that. To sell out Ford was an issue that's been in front of the Ford family now for several years. And 
um, they were the ones who did, in some respects, approve the huge borrowing of 20-some-odd billion dollars. Even, even hocking the Blue Oval hocking with the Ford the name Oval, on it. The glass house, everything was, because at that point, it was either borrow money or risk losing it all in a bankruptcy, which the family would and every other Ford shareholder would, which, by the way, is what happened at GM. Stockholders lost everything. Um, and Alan Mulally's arrival at Ford really um, changed the course of that company's... Uh, he really comes off as a hero in future. your book. And, and I think anybody who has met him, and, and you, you say this throughout the book, too, they just say he's one of the most extraordinary individuals that they've ever met in their lives. And he's an outsider. And he had been 37 years with the same company, uh, Boeing, and very, very successful, by the way. Um, but this idea that an outsider in Detroit uh, was out of his element, couldn't understand it, couldn't fathom it, uh, would be lost in it, that turned out to be his biggest advantage. It really did. And uh, I, the term outsider is a little um, misleading because as an outsider of Bob Lutz when he leaves Chrysler and goes to GM, he's an outsider. Or does it mean that you can only be from Detroit? I think that's been proven wrong. Um, at least in Mulally's case. At least in Mulally's case. Personally, I thought that Alan Mulally was going to get chewed up and spit out by this industry. Boy, did he prove me wrong. But when you look at the so-called other outsiders that came in, Bob Nardelli at Chrysler, uh, Smale at General Motors, or a number of others uh, in, throughout the course of history, did get chewed up and spit out. And he did have the support of the, of the Ford family and the Ford Board of Directors, and most importantly of Bill Ford Jr., who had been the CEO and was still the chairman. Um, I think the experience at Ford has shown about, a lot about teamwork at the corporate level and what it takes. Um, everybody has to know their role. That's a favorite saying of Alan Mulally. If you look at General Motors versus Ford and how they developed over the years, um, in this case, the, the Ford uh, family and uh, its board of directors, which was a very long time um, entrenched group, made a call that they would take a chance on someone as different as Mulally, because what they liked about him was he was different, and he did see things differently. And the old ways had gotten Ford, GM, and Chrysler basically to the precipice of disaster, and maybe you could say they actually went over the cliff. I don't know. All I know is my, one of the themes of my book is the, the, the crisis of 08 is when the big three kind of broke apart, and Ford went in one direction, GM Chrysler had to go in another direction to survive. How did you put this book together? One of the things that really impressed <laughs> me about it is how you capture the whole chronology of how things went together. And there must have been so much that you wanted to put in and yet continue, continuously have a nice flow in the book. You must have really struggled with that. I worked pretty hard on it, I'll say that. Uh, the two most important things in a book like this are the chronology, number one, and secondly are the interviews. I wanted this to be an original book, original reporting. Um, granted, there's a lot of events in here that are very well known, and it's a challenge to write a suspenseful book. Well known, book. but not the behind the scenes that you captured. Because, we, yeah, we do know everything that happened. We lived through it. Anyone in the industry lived through it. But we didn't know the behind the scenes of what was going on, and you really got that. And I, and I tried to bring it to life and bring these people and, and put flesh and blood on them and let you know what they were all about, whether it was Alan Mulally, Rick Wagner, Sergio Marchione. These are very driven, high-performance, uh, intelligent men primarily, uh, you know, and competitive to a fault. Um, 
And the fact is, these companies didn't go down for lack of trying to make them better. So I, I, I felt that what was important for me was to be accurate and tell the truth, but also to uncover stuff that, that wasn't well known. And to let you know that um, the, the, um, it's not a stereotype in Detroit. There, there's more shades of gray here. And it did take a lot of work, but the fact is I stuck to a chronology because I think that's how stories are told. I think people want to know what happens next. And hopefully in the book, when you end one chapter, you want to know what happens next and you go to the next. No, it absolutely worked uh, because I knew what, how it was all going to end, and yet I was just <laughs> ripping through the pages. How would you get the interview with Rick Wagner, former CEO of General Motors? Because when Rick was essentially fired by the government, I mean, he just disappeared. I mean, nobody, to my knowledge, has gotten an interview with him. Obviously, you did. How hard was it to get that interview with him and get him to talk about this? Well, it's interesting. I probably interviewed Rick Wagner dozens and dozens of times during his time at General Motors. But once he did uh, leave the company at the behest of the president of the United States, essentially, uh, he was not in a, in, uh, in a mood to talk. And I believe for a while did not plan to talk to anyone. But I've known Rick a long time and I've known the people who are close to him a long time. And I just wanted to put out there in a, in a way that was open-ended to him, when you're ready, uh, it would be, I think it would be, um, A, it would be very helpful to me and I'd appreciate it. And B, I think the story needs to be told and your part in it is, a, is, a, is an integral a part of the GM story. And Rick's a, a, a stand-up guy and a gentleman, and when the time came that he felt that he wanted to, to not so much get things off his chest, but answer my questions, um, he agreed. One ground rule I conducted all the interviews under was um, everything was just for the book, number one. It was just for the book. It was not for the New York Times. Uh, and, and secondly, that no one be, would be specifically identified as a source of anything in the book. Um, their quotes would be used. Their words would be used. I'd be very careful that they were accurate and exactly what they said. And in case of conversations between one or two or three people, two or three people, one person was usually the source of the conversation, then I'd take it to the other people and say, Do you, is this the way you recall? Um, if there was a disagreement, I didn't use it. But generally, um, people uh, have good memories and they, they, they know what they said. And they may not have liked it, but um, they, they were honest. And I appreciated that from everybody, including did you, Rick. Did you get any incidents where people were telling you different stories about the same event? I think people had different um, viewpoints. Uh, viewpoints. And, what they did, what they felt. And if that was the case, I tried to just focus on that um, in, this, in the book and not um, the back and forth. You know, there were a lot of um, uh, uh, observations, for example, by the Automotive Task Force, people who knew nothing about the auto industry, admittedly, and came in and started asking questions at General Motors that had never been asked before, literally never been asked before, except maybe by Jerry York. Um, if, if, if nothing else, Jerry York asked the right questions a lot earlier than anybody else publicly. Um, and I, we, I think we all learned a lot from that, that kind of grilling that the um, CEOs of the auto industry took in front of Congress, um, in front of the task force, uh, which were essentially an arm of the Obama administration. And even now, 
So the, op the transparency in what we've learned about these companies um, has been well served by the fact that a crisis sort of cleanses the the uh, the dirty linen and everything gets out there for everybody to see. With one exception, the UAW. At the end of the book, you uh, cite and you, you you thank everybody that you interviewed for the book. Ron Gettelfinger is not on there. No senior UAW person is. It seems like the union is still got this this wall around it. Actually, I only cited uh, specific people because there were some who, because of their commitment um, of time at Ford, GM, Chrysler, and down the line. Um, I felt they, met, they were worth mentioning. But Ron did not choose to speak to me for the book. I've, I, I, I have interviewed Ron Gettelfinger many, many, many times and, and been there at 3 in the morning when a contract was announced and been there in Washington and, and had a couple of very long conversations with him. But when it came time for him to, um, I think he felt that he um, didn't want to reveal secrets from the negotiating table. Of course, there's a, quite a bit in there about negotiations. You, you got the story anyway, I found out even on without my own. I respect uh, Mr. Gettelfinger a lot. I think he comes across in the book as a very passionate, driven, and committed um, executive of the one of the biggest and most powerful unions in the United States, and did his best to navigate this crisis for his people, just as Alan Mulally did for Ford Motor Company, or. Jennifer Granholm, for example, did for the state of Michigan. As governor of the state of Michigan. I don't know. To me, in your book, the, the union comes off as somewhat petulant and unrealistic in that uh, they're, they're fighting Delphi, which wants to go into bankruptcy and change things. Uh, and, and today, there's not one UAW employee at Delphi. It seems to me, in, in reading this, that they just would not accept reality until it was too late. And, and they were devastated by not, not addressing these problems earlier, just as management was in trouble for not addressing these problems earlier. Well, the empire was falling apart, you know, and it was happening so fast. Traditionally, the union um, is going to um, respond in kind and try and fight it. Um, they have lived to fight another day. The union does still exist, and they still have 112,000 employees at GM, Ford, and Chrysler, which is less than half of five years ago. So there have been a, there's been a lot of um, personal toll on the workers, both white-collar and blue-collar. In fact, I, I've got to commend you on that. I, I hate to keep interrupting, but there's no, so much go good right stuff ahead. to talk about. Is You talk to a lot of blue-collar people, and that's one thing that I really uh, uh, admire you for doing in this book is getting some of those first-person stories because it was devastating for so many people, especially the hourly ranks, as you say, half as many as there were just five years ago. It, it really brings home how brutal this transformation was. The number of layoffs and the number of plants closed are really mind-boggling. And I, I, was, I, I drew on my experiences, for example, at the Oklahoma City plant, which was the first major assembly plant to be closed in GM's um, dominoes. And I was there when it closed, and um, it, was, uh, it was a shock. And as time went on, the shock spread throughout the entire big three. Um, you could go on and on, uh, whether it's Wixom or Janesville or, or Wilmington or um, Edison, New Jersey, the, just plant after plant, and offices and whole floors at these companies. At one point, we thought the Renaissance Center was going to... Um, go out of business. GM's uh, headquarters in downtown Detroit looked like it was going to go down as well, right? So, but back to the union, I, I, people have um, 
commented about the this how the legacy costs in the auto industry are sort of a if you can call it a microcosm, but but a smaller version of what's going on in America today with legacy costs, and I think that's instructive. Uh, these these costs, these pensions, these healthcare costs, not so much for the people who are working there now, but for the generations of people who built the cars before and their survivors were unsustainable. Um, the numbers had become almost like monopoly money at General Motors. I remember thinking when they got the healthcare trust in the 2007 negotiations, how in the world is General Motors going to come up with $30 billion to fund this retiree healthcare? On paper, they all agreed, and it was a win-win. And now the retiree is going to be taken care of. Uh, at Chrysler, the retirees ended up getting title to the company, essentially, because they couldn't afford to pay it. And, and if we've learned anything is you can't be li live beyond your means, and you can't waste money. And I think a lot of money was wasted on beautiful assembly plants. Oklahoma City was a great example. They spent $700 million redoing that plant three years before they closed it. You can't survive in the industry making those kinds of, of mistakes. And unfortunately, at, at, at General Motors, I believe they thought they could. I believe they thought that they could continue to lose money indefinitely until they made money. And their constituents and the rest of the world would be okay with it. They weren't okay with it. No, they weren't. No, they weren't. I would add to that analogy, too, uh, for the rest of the country to look at what GM, Ford, and Chrysler did. As painful and brutal as it was, look how solid of a position they are in right now. And that's kind of where you end up with the book is they've been through this painful process, but now they are profitable even at very low sales levels. I mean, the, the, the market's better than it was a year ago, and a year ago was better than a year before that, but it's still very low by historical standards, and yet they're profitable. Well, there's an extraordinary financial rescue of General Motors by the federal government. Um, it wiped away a lot of the past problems, and they have a tremendous balance sheet now, and they're as competitive as any company in the world. Um, Ford Motor Company did it with borrowed money as well, but the traditional way from banks, which they've paid back and are paying back. Um, you, can't, um, you can't look back too much now with GM. It's a different company. It's completely different. After you go through bankruptcy, you should be a different company, in my opinion. And the same is true of Chrysler. But I think what it underscores is that this industry had a lot of talent, a lot of resources, and a lot of products that people, in fact, were very fond of, just not enough, and too many that they didn't care about. So once you've right-sized, and I'm assuming it is right-sized now, this um, thing we call Detroit is the equal of, of the automakers in Europe and the automakers in Asia. And some of them are going through their own uh, hard um, restructurings to try and keep to keep up with Detroit, which is something I didn't think we'd be saying too much of. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, speaking about General Motors for a minute, you get into a little bit of how uh, uh, Whitaker, who had been appointed chairman by the task force, then abruptly left and Dan Ackerson took over. Uh, you cite what everybody else has said that uh, Whitaker would not commit to be there in the long run. They felt they couldn't do an IPO without a CEO who was going to be there for the long run. But I've heard other things that, in fact, Ackerson schemed to push Whitaker out. Any more behind the scenes that uh, you could talk about there? Well, you know, one thing that I learned in doing this book is I, I, 
I kind of thought in my mind that the first two-thirds would be before the bankruptcy and the last one-third would be after. Then I realized books don't necessarily work that way. They build to a climax. The climax in this book is General Motors, the biggest, most powerful American company in history going bankrupt. So some people will say, Bill, what about afterwards? You only devote three or four chapters to what happened after. I think that story's still unfolding. Um, at the time, we didn't know how um, open-ended the post-bankruptcy uh, management structure was going to be at GM. I think a lot of us figured Fritz Henderson would be running GM. Um, that turned out to be not the case. This new board has the power at GM. Whitaker was on that board, chairman of that board. Dan Ackerson was on that board. Um, I, Ed Whitaker said to me, I wish I was five years younger. I truly believe that. I don't think he understood until he got here what an intoxicating, um, can't wait to get up in the morning kind of business this really is and how um, powerful it can be to, to see uh, a company like General Motors change. But he didn't want to stay for indefinitely. They needed a CEO that was willing to stay at least in an open-ended way. And we'll never know if they had made Ed Whitaker the CEO immediately after GM came out of bankruptcy, uh, if he would have stayed two or three years under those circumstances. The task force was making up as they went along at that point. They wanted a board. And Dan Ackerson is now the CEO. Uh, I don't think uh, Ed Whitaker's ever looked back once he got on that plane back to Texas. Um, but he did say, uh, I wish I was five years younger, which indicated to me that he would have liked to have stayed longer. Huh. Um, but uh, again, all the, um, all the rules have been broken, <laughs> and they're changing even as we speak. Folks, I highly recommend the book. It was a page turner for me. Anybody in the business is absolutely going oh, to want you, to Jim. read it. You really captured what was going on behind the scenes. I've been waiting for this book. I'm so glad that you brought it out. Bill Vlasic, thanks so much for coming on AutoLine this week. Thanks, John. I really appreciate it.